Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABEX Technologies, and I'm Todd Buchholz, host of our five-part series, An Emerging Energy Framework for the 22nd Century. You can find me at Econ Todd. Joining me today for the final episode of the series is a guest whom the New York Times referred to as America's most influential energy pundit, Daniel Jurgen. Dr. Jurgen is the vice chair of IHS Market, one of the world's largest research and information companies, and author of the Pulitzer Prize winning bestseller, The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power. I look forward to discussing his latest book, The New Map, a four-part book that illuminates the great issues of geopolitics and energy in our era of rising political turbulence and points to the profound challenges that lie ahead. Stay tuned. My conversation with Dr. Jurgen is coming up next. And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. Our guest today is Daniel Jurgen, author of the masterly work, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. And of course, the public can expect Daniel Jurgen to produce these masterly works as he's done before. He's really become, I would say, the world's foremost intellectual focused on the energy sector. And this has been going on for quite a long time, his Pulitzer Prize winning book The Prize uh, is on bookshelves across the world in who knows how many dozens of languages. Uh, But before we get into a deep discussion of the new map and the energy sector and what is taking place in all corners of the world, I wanted to ask, Dan, how you got into the energy sector. My understanding is you grew up in Los Angeles. Your father worked in Hollywood. And I, I was thinking to myself, well, what is the connection there? And then I realized that Los Angeles itself actually sits on, I think, the world's largest urban oil field. And visitors to Los Angeles to this day, as they drive around, may once in a while spy a few little oil drills that are bobbing up and down like donkeys bobbing for apples. And I'm wondering, when you were growing up in Los Angeles, uh, was the oil sector a significant presence or was it just sort of a a token of the past? Well, I think it was a token of the past. Uh, There's an oil field under West Los Angeles and my parents got a 30 or $40 a month check royalties as everybody else living on our street did. But I really wasn't aware of that. I was probably more aware of it because uh, because of the automobile, because people consume a lot of gasoline. There, As in other parts of the United States, there were gas lines in the 1970s. And that was a message that the world was changing from an era when the U.S. had dominated world oil markets to where the U.S. had become a major importer of oil. And that's, I think, what really got me interested in it. Hmm. I, I was unaware of the the monthly checks that your parents uh, would have received. 
tiny, tiny, tiny. But everybody in West Los in this part of West LA got these little checks. Wow. Well, I mean, and, and of course, citizens of Alaska receive a royalty on an annual basis. So I guess the Alaska royalty is not un, unprecedented in that sense. Now, one of the reasons why I admire uh, your work over the years is that you often see through the fads that others hop onto. And I'm thinking in particular about 10, 15 years ago, so many people were squawking about peak oil. And frankly, I thought that was a ridiculous forecast. And I was pleased to see that at the time, you also looked at it and, and took a more optimistic view. And so maybe you could walk us through at that time when peak oil was seemed to be the rage, meaning we were running out of stuff under the ground. Uh, you saw that something else was taking place, something that would turn out to be one of the biggest revolutions in American history of commodities. Well, what happened was that I looked back actually in the pages of the prize and realized that when people said we we're at peak oil, it was the, about the fifth time that the world had run out of oil, that we'd gone through these periods before. And by the way, the language was very similar, even after World War I, uh, after World War II, there were just these series of it. And each time what made the difference was one technology and two new areas opened up. And I was convinced that what was called unconventional oil was going to change the balance, that technology was going to change the balance because there was a need to do it. And that's, of course, what we saw happen. So the U.S. went from running out of oil to becoming, as it is today, the world's largest producer of oil. And it is remarkable. And, and of course, the politics cut into this crisscross all the time. I found during the Obama administration, for instance, there was a bit of a paradox because at times President Obama, who was in office while the shale revolution was raging, would take credit and cite exactly as you did, uh, that the U.S. produces more oil and exports more than it basically has in its history, or at least the last 40 or 50 years of it. Then at other times, you got the impression he didn't really like the idea that that was taking place because uh, he and his advisors tend not to be in favor of shale and fracking and, and discouraging pipelines from Canada. Would you consider the, the shale revolution to be one of the great engineering victories of our day? Yeah, I would say that it's probably... Well, not probably. It is so far the number one energy technology revolution, innovation of the 21st century, because people said it couldn't happen. And like a lot of things, it began with one person's obsession that there had to be a solution to getting oil out of shale and natural gas out of shale. And uh, it took about 15 or 17 years to prove it. But it happened, and it was driven, innovation is driven by need. And you're quite right, there was a, a lot of ambivalence in the Obama administration, but twice in his State of the Union addresses, he praised what was happening with uh, shale gas because of what it meant in terms of job creation. And I remember we had a uh, conference, uh, and we had Ben Bernanke after he'd stepped down as head of the uh, Federal Reserve. I think it's in the new map. I quoted him as saying, at that point, following the financial crisis of 2008-2009, the shale revolution, he said, was one of the most positive things to have actually happened to the U.S. economy. And then he said, maybe the most important at that point, coming out of the uh, economic downturn that came with the, uh, with the financial crisis. 
And you mentioned one man's obsession, and, and I'd like you to share with our listeners a little bit about the man and the obsession. Now, I've reminded listeners to this podcast that back in 1980, boy, that was a long time ago, when Ronald Reagan was debating Jimmy Carter, and they asked Jimmy Carter about energy supplies, and he, thinking back to his fireside speech with his cardigan sweater on, uh, started warning that we were running out of energy and that we would have to conserve and conservation would be the way of the future and we needed to turn up our thermostats in the summertime and turn them down in the wintertime. And Reagan shrugged and said, well, I hear there's something called shale and there's more energy under the crust of the earth than imagined. And most reporters looked at him as if he was a nutcase at the time. Now, you mentioned that it was the obsession of one man or a couple men. So give us a little flavor for the story of obsession that's led to this revolution. Well, I think first what you described at, between Carter and Reagan, it was a, at that time a scarcity mentality. That was one of the times when the world was going to run out of oil and that, that had become kind of the doctrine. And to disagree with that was to you know, not be rational. It turned out it was pretty rational to disagree with it. There's a man named George Mitchell, and he was uh, he was not so much an oil man as a gas man. And he uh, was a major supplier of natural gas to the city of Chicago. Problem was, his gas fields were running down, and he read an article saying, you know, we can get gas, maybe oil, out of shale rock. And the textbook said, oh, well, actually, that's not possible. And he kept going at it, and people said, George, you're wasting your money. And he said, because he controlled his company, he said, well, it's my money. If I want to waste it, I will. And it was one of those things, you know, history does turn on contingencies. And uh, a guy who was working for him, they're kind of, after 16 years, thinking of maybe we're just going to give up. He goes to a baseball game in Dallas, sits next to somebody else who says, well, try this instead of that. They tried it. It worked. And that was 1998. And between then and 2003, this went from an idea to showing that it, it could work. And the shale revolution thereafter took off. But there are great forces of history at work. There's technology at work. And then there are individuals who make a difference. And what was the technological leap? Was it uh, the injection of water deep into wells? What did they need to figure out that they finally did in 1998? Well, well really, 98 was the beginning. But two, by 2003, two things came together. One was what's called horizontal drilling, which depended upon really the advance, among other things, in measurement and computers. And combining with that, which applying actually what is called fracking today or hydraulic fracturing, which is the ability to break this very dense rock so that these tiny little pores develop in it and this oil that's trapped begins to flow into the well bore. So it's really bringing two technologies together and showing how they could work together. And it's remarkable how quickly the technology spread whether it was uh, Texas, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and then, you know, leaped across the world, I guess, to what, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and various other stands that I might not cite correctly. So uh, let me ask you, it never occurred to me, was there intellectual property that was widely shared? I mean, why weren't the techniques could they have been patented in such a way that the obsessed individuals at the ball game could have kept it to themselves? I think it's more like know-how. And these were technologies that were permeating, you know, hydraulic fracturing had been developing at the same time. 
horizontal drilling had been developed. So I think it was more know-how and how do you put them together and actually how do you manage the process. So it wasn't like a, you know, an invention of an iPhone or something like that. This has completely changed, as you explain in the new map, the geopolitical map as well. And I, in the pre-fracking days, in the when peak oil seemed to at least be a popular concept, there was also the concept that the U.S. would ever be dependent on foreign oil, that the U.S. would be beholden to OPEC, that U.S. policy in the Mideast would have to excuse this sort of geographic pun, kowtow to Arab sheiks. That seemed to be the image one would see. And that Russia might have more power because it had um, growing commodity power. And, and this has turned everything over. In what way politically do you think the shale revolution has, if you will, liberated U.S. foreign policy? Well, I think it's done that very significantly. And I think that's, in a way, people in other parts of the world understand that better than people in the United States. I think a lot of the debates in the United States about energy don't see what this has done for us. First, just from an economic point of view, instead of spending $400 billion a year importing oil, we're not. And you take two years of $400 billion not staying in this economy, that's sort of like a stimulus program, actually. So there's that economic significance. But I had this experience, and it's a story, I, I don't tell it in the first person, but it is a first person story in the book. At this conference in St. Petersburg, which was Vladimir Putin's version of the Davos conference called the St. Petersburg International uh, Economic Forum. And he is up there with Chancellor Merkel of Germany. And so they say, I can ask the first question. And I say something, uh, and it's obvious question, what are you going to do about diversifying your economy so you're not so dependent on oil? And instead, uh, I by accident mentioned shale and he starts shouting at me in front of 3,000 people. And the reason he does, I realize, is he doesn't like shale because he sees it as one, creating a new competitor and a competitor with exports of U.S. natural gas to Europe with Russian gas. And he sees it as an adjunct to U.S. foreign policy, giving the U.S. the kind of independence that is exactly what you describe. And I can see it around the world. Uh, I'm on this uh, energy think tank for the Indian government. There are relationship with India, an important element now is the fact that we are exporting oil and natural gas to them and contributing to energy security for them. So it, it gives us, and, and your question about the changing attitude, I mean, you ask people in the Middle East and we're withdraw, they see us withdrawing. I was in a meeting with a, a senator, kind of a moderate Democrat, who says, well, we have to right-size our commitment to the Middle East. If we were importing 60% of our oil as we did 10 or 12 years ago, he would not be saying that. So it has really given the U.S. a flexibility in foreign policy that it simply did not have when we were importing 60% of the oil that we were consuming. It is remarkable. I, I see in today's Wall Street Journal, there's a headline, U.S. domination ending, Putin says. And of course, he's got all sorts of reasons, he thinks, for for saying that. But I think the fact that the U.S. is now competing with Russia, it makes it more complicated uh, for the hand that the strong hand that Putin thinks that he has. Yeah. And I think you can see in the OPEC deliberations and the OPEC plus deliberations that go on that the Russians don't you know, worry that oil prices will go too high and will reignite the growth in U.S. oil production. So they're very sensitive to it. 
of course, that theme, theme you say about U.S. domination, I mean, one of the, the themes I do talk about in the book is this relationship between Putin and uh, Xi Jinping of China. And they both basically uh, are united in many things, including their antipathy to an international order that they see dominated by the United States. And of course, th I believe they toasted a new pipeline from Russia to northern China. Is that, is that correct? Uh, it's called the power of Siberia. Yeah, no, the power of Siberia. Yes, it is. Uh, it is. And they had a very elaborate ceremony to celebrate it. And I think in, to some degree, a relationship that was once based upon Marx and Lenin is today uh, based on oil and gas. It is remarkable. Yeah, the power of Siberia used to be the poor political prisoners sent to the gulag. And now I guess it's actually natural gas. LNG, liquefied natural gas, has complicated the new map as well. And is also the ability of the U.S. to export LNG is a newfound source of power and revenue. And my understanding is uh, Mr. Putin doesn't like that either, or especially doesn't like the idea that European nations or Asian nations may be able to get LNG instead of having to buy Russian natural gas. How does, how does LNG fit into the world map or the new map? Yeah, LNG, uh, you know, it's amazing. You look at it literally at the maps of the trade that goes on now in natural gas as LNG sailing around the world and the U.S. becoming one of the big three exporters. And you'll have cargoes, the U.S. exporting gas to Japan, actually the U.S. exporting LNG to China. Actually, that's a major market for us. And for the Europeans, it's become U.S. LNG and LNG from Qatar and from Australia and other countries really has given them choices. And, you know, we hear a lot about is Europe dependent on Russian gas? Europeans have choices. They have a flexible gas system and they can buy LNG. And so the development of U.S. LNG has actually been a big contribution to European energy security and I would say to global energy security. And of course, there have been tremendous finds in the Mediterranean that Israel has been able to develop and Turkey's ambitions for perhaps hegemony in that region may also be related to a desire to control gas and, and oil fields. Um, how do you perceive the Mediterranean part of the Middle East amid these new finds? It's, there's another example of where kind of a single individual had a big factor here. There was a uh, octogenarian Israeli geologist who was convinced that there was uh, natural gas off the coast of Israel. And of course, people said he was crazy. It wasn't there. But using very high-powered computers, they located it. And now the Eastern Med, as it's called in, in jargon, has become a major growth area for new natural gas supplies. Again, an alternative to uh, Russian gas uh, and uh, very significant for Israel, which had no real resources before. And it's also significant. There have been major Egyptian discoveries. And uh, as you say, Turkey uh, under President Erdogan uh, wants to revive what we might call the Ottoman vocation and to be dominant. And the Israelis and Egyptians and uh, the Cypriots would like to build a pipeline to, say, Italy. And Turkey now gets together with Libya or one of the governments in Libya and says, well, actually, those are our territorial waters and you can't build that pipeline. So here's a whole new resource, new potential, new opportunities and new geopolitical conflict. How stable do you think Erdogan's hold is 
on Turkey? Well, I'm not an, an expert on that. We uh, over, I mean, he's been in power a long time, and I think, you know, I think he controls the lever of powers in the country. Yeah, I guess you can do that when you have judges arrested who rule against you and appoint your sons-in-law to head the central bank and that sort of activity. I wanted to ask you about the medium-term viability of OPEC. You had mentioned that, I think, as we speak, OPEC and Russia and Saudi Arabia are negotiating how much of the restraint on production might be relaxed. Uh, you had pointed out that Russia indeed may not want the price of oil to move from $73 today to perhaps mid-80s because that would incentivize more production outside of Russia and outside of OPEC. Do you think there'll be an OPEC in 25 years, given the new developments? And if there is, will it be uh, working on uh, you know, podcasts and video games, or will it still be trying to regulate the price of oil? Well, 25 years out, there's a lot of technology between here and there. Uh, I think that you know, over the years, obituaries are written for OPEC, and then it comes back. And right now, we're at least at a period when it's no longer just OPEC, but it's OPEC plus. And the OPEC plus means with major producers who are not members like Saudi Arabia. And so the basis of call it what used to be just OPEC's management of the market or stabilization of the market or is really OPEC plus. And it, at the bottom, it, crucially, it's a relationship between Saudi Arabia and Russia that makes it work. You know, a year ago, it looked like the whole thing was over, the negative prices, oil price collapse. Turn around today, we're at least in a period of, of strong oil prices, with the Russians playing a very crucial role in the market. And of course, at the end of the day, OPEC, OPEC plus, it's really the big guys who dominate it. And if you really want to look at it, it's really the world oil today, it's the big three. It's Saudi Arabia, Russia, and number one, the United States in terms of production. In addition to production restraints that OPEC plus uh, has agreed to and is negotiating at this moment, we also have the, the issue of Iran and Iran possibly for concessions uh, in the nuclear deal, perhaps might be permitted to pump out more oil. Do you think if there were an agreement uh, between nations negotiating with Iran that would allow them to pump more oil, it would make a significant difference in the total amount or in the price of oil? Not as significant as it would have seemed a few years ago, because Iran, you know, if it came into the market, it would add a million to a million and a half barrels a day, which is actually not a huge amount given the fact that oil production is going to uh, and demand is increase with what I describe now as our post COVID economy with growth, you know, high growth. We're showing the world this year growing at 6%, the US at 7.4%. So I think the market will absorb it. And I think that OPEC plus club will adjust their volumes uh, to it. But of course, as you say, that all depends upon there being a new nuclear deal. And uh, it's tougher now than it was, I think, when they did the original one a number of years ago, because there's also the question about the activities of Iran in the region, Iran's uh, ballistic missile program. So I think it's, you know, it seemed that a few weeks ago that maybe they would get there, but now it seems, and it could change again, but now it seems it's going to be 
difficult to actually come to uh, an agreement because the Iranians are going to say, well, you have to do away with the sanctions you put on, for instance, the Revolutionary Guards who are the bulwark of the regime. Well, if you do that, you know, if an administration does that, it's going to hear from the Congress. Well, so far in our discussion, we've been focusing on shale and new technologies that have allowed a greater supply of energy. And, and, and your book, The New Map, not just outlines, but in a comprehensive way, demonstrates how important this is. And yet there's a problem. The problem is, while technologically we now have access to untold sources of energy and natural gas, we also have on the political and environmental side a big proportion of the world population that despises fossil fuels. So if we lived in an era where we weren't concerned about climate change, where we weren't concerned about fossil fuels being a dirty word, we could just pop the champagne corks and say, hey, we've got so much energy, it's almost free, the industrial economy roars on. But this is a clash, not a clash of two civilizations, but a clash of technology with a clash of uh, political sentiment and passion. So does the shale revolution continue in the face of political movements widespread to actually stomp on the effort to rely on fossil fuels? Well, remember Joe Biden in the campaign said, I will not ban fracking. And then he um, said, let me say it again. I will not ban fracking. Of course, he had to say that. He was speaking in Western Pennsylvania, which has benefited a lot from fracking. But he also had to say that because the bulk of the other leading Democratic candidates wanted to ban fracking. So that's there. But I think that um, there's no question that we're. I think we're going to see under a Biden administration efforts to, by some, to use regulation to hem in the domestic industry. I did an interview for our Sierra Week conference with the Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and asked her, what's your message to the 10 and a half million Americans who work in the oil and gas industry? And she started talking about, you know, finding jobs in renewable energy for them. And so I think to build upon what you're saying, I think there's a real clash of worldviews here as well. The risk for a Biden administration is that if they go down that route and hem it in, you know what? A ban fracking policy is a really an import more policy. And Joe Biden has been on record saying that he doesn't like the idea of the U.S. importing foreign oil. So there are 280 million cars in the United States and almost all of them run on gasoline, whatever the ambitions are for the future. So I think there'll be tension within the administration what to do. So I don't think we would see an outright ban. I'm not sure they could do that anyway, because primarily oil and gas production is regulated by states, not the federal government. But there are a lot of things you can do regulatorily to make life a lot more difficult. As you say, the, the vast majority of automobiles are gasoline engines. I think uh, EVs may make up a single-digit percentage point, maybe 3% or something like that. Not even, not even that. Not even that. There are 3% of sales in the United States, but well less than 1%. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, yeah, having said that, Elon Musk has, has done a brilliant job of creating a, a beautiful, powerful battery-powered engine. But that does uh, raise an interesting issue because you hear the automakers, and I believe you may profile Mary Barra 
from GM and the new map uh, have been talking about eliminating the gasoline combustion engine by as soon as what, 2035, 24? That's coming along pretty quickly. Is is that feasible? Is that just something to feed to, um, you know, Mother Jones reporters? Or is that actually something that's going to be hammered out in the boardroom? Well, if you look at where they're spending their money, they are gearing up to wind down gasoline-powered engines. And I think that's generally running through the automobile industry. The regulatory pressure on the companies is enormous. That fuel efficiency standards keep getting raised. They get more expensive. There are enormous incentives that encourage um, people to buy and own electric cars. In Europe, the fines on automobile makers they could be spending $40 billion on fines if uh, they don't uh, really move towards EV. So those pressures are very, very great, I think. But uh, if I could just, this is another example too, you know, of how things change. I have the story in the book about in 2003, this young guy was obsessed with electric vehicles named J.B. Straubel had lunch with the great, as he was then even, Elon Musk at a fish restaurant in Los Angeles. They were trying to, he and his guy with him were trying to convince Musk to do an, an electric airplane. And Musk said, not interested in that. He said, well, what about the electric car? He said, I might be interested in that. And of course, that was the origin of, I mean, Tesla already exists as a tiny little company, but that was the origin of the Tesla that we see today. And a couple of years ago, Elon Musk said, you know, if we hadn't had that lunch, there might never have been a Tesla. And all the automobile makers might not be saying, you know, hey, we can do electric cars. But I think you're going to, there's going to be tremendous, you know, lots of pressure from governments to move towards electric vehicles. But I think it will take time. Yeah, it's a great story. So, so anyone driving with Tesla can credit their Tesla to, you know, a sea trout for lunch. Now, if we, to the extent, that automobiles move from gasoline power to EV, in a way, it's moving from extracting oil from the ground to extracting precious metals and minerals, cobalt and iron and platinum and palladium and nickel and all the other rare and unrare metals that we mine from the earth. Do we know from an environmental point of view whether that's a good move or not? Is it better to be driving? And of course, to the extent that newer automobiles to be more fuel efficient are using more plastics, well, what is that plastic made from? Of course, it's made from fossil fuels. So how clean are EV vehicles after all? Well, I think that's a uh, subject of debate, and I think it'll be a subject of more debate. About 20% of an EV, according to my colleagues who work on automobiles, are plastic. And as you say, plastic comes from either oil or natural gas. Secondly, there's definitely a carbon footprint to producing minerals. One estimate is for 1,000 pound battery for an electric car, you have to move 500,000 pounds of earth. And I think this question of supply chains for uh, uh, let's call it the net zero carbon world has really been not really clearly examined at all. Cobalt, a great part of the world's cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where you have um, what are called, for some reason, they call them artisanal mines. I don't know why they call them. These are hand dug mines. 
and they have like a, a million children, I think, are, is the estimate work in these kind of mines, you know, child labor. So that's so I think there will be increasing scrutiny over this. And the wind may be free and the sun may be free, but you're using, as you say, a lot of materials that have to be moved thousands of miles to create the wind turbines to make the electric cars. Of course, we've seen a dramatic plunge in the cost of solar panels and solar power and a dramatic plunge in the cost of wind power such that would you say they outcompete coal and natural gas utility plants without federal subsidies? Or would you say with federal subsidies, but perhaps on an equal basis, it, they might not outcompete? Well, I think they, as you say, they've been competitive. We talked about the shale revolution. Clearly, there's been a solar revolution too. Wind and solar are both industries that are 50 years old, but it's in the last 10 years they have become really competitive. Solar costs have come down 85%. A lot of that is on the back of Chinese manufacturing because the Chinese manufacture about 80% or more of the solar panels in the world, and they just you know dominate the global markets. And so- Chinese manufacturing has been very important to them. I'd say, I mean, to some degree, it depends on the locality, what part of the country you're in or what part of the world. But I think, you know, I'd say, you know, wind and solar are definitely competitive. And on top of that, they're made more competitive by, call them incentives, subsidies, whatever you want to do, that uh, encourage uh, utilities to move in that direction, along with the regulation that pushes them to move in that direction. The continuing rise of renewables, solar and wind in, in particular, doesn't necessarily mean that we will be using less oil and gas, does it? Because I mean, as the economy grows, it needs more energy. And so perhaps they get a bigger share, but the absolute amount of power and resources used may actually keep rising. I mean, let me, let me put it another way. Do you see demand for oil and gas declining over time and and to what extent yeah so todd that's a source of you know enormous argument the arguments are are political that going on and you know scenario people put out scenarios that are confused with forecasts the view i take in the new map and did a lot of thinking and research on it is that oil world oil demand continues to increase till around 2030 and then begins a decline, not the kind of very dramatic decline that some foresee. I see natural gas continuing to grow for a longer period before it flattens out and begins to decline. So I think an energy mix in 2050 from where we are today will have a lot more wind and solar, but it'll also continue to have a lot of oil and natural gas in it. And do you think oil and gas exploration firms and so-called big oil, if that still exists, We'll be able to get access to funding for new exploration. The ESG movement is very powerful and widespread. Well, I think that's true. I think first I should say, you know, you've mentioned big oil and going back to what you were talking about before, I think big oil is, we're going to be talking about big shovels because there's going to be a lot of mining in the future. And so it's, you know, for mining companies, this is a very significant future. I think the access to capital and the constraints on capital are definitely there. I think for the oil and gas industry, it's been a combination of poor returns combined with a growing ESG movement. With higher prices, we'll see whether investors, how much they're interested in returns and how much ESG, but no question the ESG pressures are going to grow. And with the Biden administration, the regulatory pressures towards ESG 
will grow. So access to capital will be a factor. And so, in fact, I think the shale producers now realize they have to return capital to investors, significant part, and that will slow down their growth. But I think it's interesting that countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia actually kind of applaud the ESG movement because they think this is going to mean larger market share for them when production elsewhere in the world goes down because the the companies that are publicly traded uh, have less access to capital. Interesting. Now, you had mentioned, uh, of course, President Biden. And thinking about the other side of the aisle, one of the leading Republican candidates would seem to be Governor DeSantis of Florida. Florida is a complicated state. Its environmental questions are profound because of the Everglades, because of the Gulf of Mexico, the Caribbean, hurricanes, and and so on. It's a very complicated geographical region. President Trump, I believe, was in favor of drilling off the coast of Florida. Do you have any insider thoughts about Governor DeSantis? I think he tried to block drilling in the Everglades. What do you see as the emerging Republican view of these fossil fuel issues? I think he was trying to block offshore drilling, you know, and that offshore drilling off of Florida has always been controversial and not at all welcomed by Floridians. You know, I think states like Florida and Texas are going to take a position of rejecting having their their pension funds not invested with fund managers who are too aggressive on ESG. And I think some indication from Florida and certainly from Texas, and Texas has some of the biggest pension funds, state pension funds in the country. So, you know, I think the battle is being joined. What do you think the the prospects of a carbon tax are in Washington to fund various programs? In fact, I, I just noticed recently the Biden administration to fund new programs and the <laughs> trillions of dollars that are proposed want to sell off some of the strategic petroleum reserve. I had worked on that issue back in my days in the White House. Carbon tax is a way to raise money for the federal government. Selling off some from the SPR could do it. Uh, the carbon tax is something that many economists on the left and the right actually agree on. But as uh, one of my colleagues, uh, MIT professor Dick Schmalenzi once said, all economists think it's a good idea. That's why it'll never be done. Uh, so what's your sense of a carbon tax these days? Uh, I think it's pretty tough. I mean, first, of course, people want to refer to it as a carbon price uh, rather than a tax. But of course, it is a tax. There are all those plans to collect the money and then rebate it to people and so forth. You know, companies too, I think a lot of companies would like a carbon tax rather than endless myriad, and you know how it works, uh, interventionist forms of regulation, which impede the development of new technologies. Even though there's maybe greater support for it, you know, to me, it still seems like a tough sell to do just because whether you call it a carbon price or something else, people see it as a, as a tax. In a way, you know, gasoline tax that you pay at the pump every time you fill up your car, unless you have an electric car, is in effect a carbon tax. I wanted to make sure we spend a little bit more time on Asia and China. China speaks of, I think they call it Plan 2025 and a new energy policy in order to reduce reliance on fossil fuels. And yet at the same time, how many coal plants is China building 
every year? You probably know better better than I. Well, a few months ago, at least, when I last checked, it uh, was three or four new plants a month. And retiring some old plants, but building new, cleaner coal plants, but definitely coal. And, you know, China gets almost 60%, not just of its electricity, but if you look, its total electricity comes from coal. It's a very coal-dependent economy. Do you see that trend breaking? I mean, it seems to me that China is creating a more renewable energy, but that doesn't mean the absolute amount of fumes and toxic releases from coal plants is reducing. It just means it could have been even worse. Right. I think that um, you know they may get 60%. They also have about half the world's installed capacity of solar, half the world's installed capacity of wind. Everything there is on big scale. They have almost half the world's electric cars. So they're kind of doing everything. Xi Jinping has set a goal of net zero carbon, not by 2050, which is in the West, but by 2060, recognizing it. But even now you've seen uh, economic authorities in China pushing back against environmental agencies because uh, they also want economic growth and they don't want to impede it. And they also, of course, coal has another issue, which is pollution. And urban pollution is a big issue for a Chinese administration that promises blue skies and that has to worry more about a middle class than it did in the past. So in a sense, they they move in different directions at the same time. I believe it was Robert Frost who wrote a poem that included the phrase, fences make good neighbors. Fences may make good neighbors, but it's unclear that China makes for a good neighbor. If you're Vietnam, say, you in, in, in your book, The New Map, include a photo, a dramatic photo of Chinese Coast Guard vessel turning water cannons onto a Vietnamese ship. You also have a photo of China's reclamation of 3,200 acres in the South China Sea. Earlier, I had alluded to Turkey's quest for some kind of hegemony in the Mediterranean. Do you think that the South China Sea will stay a peaceful place as China tries to expand its hold amid a desperate need for more minerals and more resources? Well, I think the Chinese, uh, they have insist that the South China Sea is Chinese territory. That's what they've been teaching for decades in the schools. And when I was researching the book, I actually went into the French archives to kind of the roots of this whole thing. And in 1933, a three French small vessels claimed nine islands in the South China Sea. And this led to great furor among some in Beijing and the drawing of what's called the nine-dash line map, which says that the South China Sea uh, which is probably the most important single waterway in the world since one-third of world trade goes through it, saying that, that that's Chinese. The nationalists adopted it. Then when the communists took over in 1949, they adopted it. And in the last 10 years or so, they've become much more aggressive about asserting their sovereignty over it. As you note, militarizing it, turning these uh, reclaimed islands into sort of stationary aircraft carriers. The neighboring countries like Vietnam don't recognize it, and nor does the United States, nor does Japan, nor does Australia, nor does Britain, nor does France. And so we do, uh, what do they call them, freedom of navigation 
patrols through there, and the Chinese challenge our ships or our airplanes for entering what they say is their territory, and we say, sorry, these are the high seas. So I think, could there be a collision? Well, there have been already been several near collisions of U.S. and Chinese naval ships. And I would say that that combined with Taiwan is where the greatest danger lies and some kind of incident happening that is not easily contained. You cited the various countries that opposed or do not recognize China's claims, but it reminds me of the story of when Joseph Stalin was told that Pope Pius opposes his action, and Stalin purportedly replied, oh, how many divisions does the Pope have? Well, China now has launched, I think, its third aircraft carrier, just as it's building coal plants every month. It's building out its Navy. Yes, uh, the U.S. fleet is powerful, but the U.S. Navy is constrained and, in fact, has to move vessels, whether from Afghanistan to the Mediterranean or back from San Diego to Asia. The U.S. is not unlimited in its naval sources. It's hard to see that any of those European nations would um, be sending, or at least sending into battle, Navy ships against China if China decided that indeed it was going to take Taiwan. When Vladimir Putin decided to march goose step style into Crimea, Ukraine, or when he marched uh, into parts of Georgia and hoped that the U.S. and NATO would somehow, I'm sorry, when, when leaders of Georgia and Ukraine hoped that the U.S. and NATO would come to their aid, there really was nothing except some encouraging words. Do you really think that Western military forces either had the firepower or the willingness to take action if China decided now is the moment, South China Sea is ours, and Taiwan is not an individual country, but belongs to us. Well, I think, and to add to your list, China now has the world's largest navy. So they have really built up their naval power since 1996. And I described the incident in 1996 when Chinese were putting pressure and blockading western ports of Taiwan. We sent some aircraft carriers into the region, and that sort of ended that. But that became a message to the Chinese, you have to, we have to build up our navy. And the pressure on Taiwan is increasing right now. It's uh, that Taiwan South China Sea complex, you know, becomes increasingly risky, and the channels of communication between the U.S. and Beijing are not what they were. You know, I think if something really happened with Taiwan, if Xi Jinping says it's its historic destiny to take it over, particularly after what we've seen happen to Hong Kong, we would be in in dangerous terrain, the stock markets would fall, people would get very nervous about what was going to happen, and is the U.S. going to maintain its commitments to Taiwan's sort of status as an independent entity, if not quite an independent nation? Dan, earlier in our discussion, we were focused on the shale revolution and what it's meant for U.S. energy independence. And indeed, it's uh, helped many nations around the world as they've been able to engage in uh, fracking and horizontal drilling. Having an abundance of raw materials is not always a wonderful thing. It depends on how those materials are managed and exploited. There was a uh, former energy minister in Venezuela years ago, this was well before the disaster that's Venezuela today, who referred to oil as, quote, the devil's excrement. Uh, 
Now, that's a more benign translation uh, of the word, but devil's excrement, meaning when a nation has raw materials and the riches of oil, uh, they tend to mismanage it and it becomes a bigger problem than if they actually were importing. What advice do you have to the U.S. and to other nations such that these new fines are actually used in ways that don't in the long term make the economy worse instead of better? Yeah, well, it is. uh, I mean, you see it again and again where uh, it then becomes a battle who controls the resource, who gets the revenues. And then there are things that also happen, which is how does it affect your currency and so forth. And so there's a question of, you know, which countries put their oil revenues to good use and which of it leads to uh, worse than economic stagnation, but corruption and poorly performing economies. I mean, look at Singapore. It has no natural resources except people, and it's done pretty darn well. You know, I think there are practical things you do. You set up a sovereign wealth fund so that when money starts flowing into the country, it doesn't flow all into into the government coffers and into people's pockets, but it flows into a fund that is there to prevent inflation and build up the domestic economy, international assets for the day when you don't have those resources. So we've seen some countries that have done very well with it. You know, it's interesting that some of them are are small countries. Abu Dhabi, you know, has went from 25 years ago, its GDP being almost all oil to 60% non-oil. Of course, the classic case is Norway, but Norway was already a developed country and set up its sovereign wealth fund and it's 4 million people. But uh, you look at a country like Nigeria, it's 200 million people. You know, the use of the money, it's been, you know, I wouldn't call it a petrostate by any means. But, well, I mean, what you point to with Venezuela was a country that did not build up its economy broadly enough, uh, even before uh, the Chavez disaster befell the country. In your book uh, and in prior books, like Commanding Heights, which was a brilliant view of how paradigms shift and a more free market view seemed to win the argument, you talk about various historical trends and benchmarks. And one of the one of the factoids um, that you mentioned in the new map is that there are many people in the world who do not have access to oil or gas, and actually are using fuels that are even more polluting. And you talk about indoor cooking. And this struck me as something that we don't find in typical conversations about energy markets. So I wanted you to share that with listeners. Yeah, I'm very struck that the energy discussions that we encounter in the United States or Canada or in Western Europe really are very connected to those societies where you don't have what, you know, something like 30% of the world's population, roughly, depends upon wood and waste for cooking. And the World Health Organization has said that indoor air pollution from this cooking uh, is the number one environmental problem in the world. You don't hear that in the Netherlands. They don't talk about that. But you sure hear it in India or you'll hear it in Africa. I mean, I'm so aware of it because of being on this think tank uh, in India, what a huge problem it is. And for them, they look on natural gas as a uh, 
commercial energy as a way to free people from the tyranny of having to gather waste every day and to have that pollution. Uh, they look at propane, which is a natural gas, uh, uh, made from natural gas or made from oil, uh, as a getting that to people so they can cook with that and not die prematurely or suffer from ill health because of indoor air pollution. And for them, commercial energy is not a scourge, but it's really a way of lifting their standard of living, taking people out of poverty, making them healthier. It's a very different perspective. It's really not part of the discussion that you hear, let's say, in the United States or other countries. But please note that a country like India has 1.3 billion people. It has a lot more people in India than there are in Western Europe. Well, and that's one of the things you've done in your books is to make us appreciate the history. I mean, even today in, in India, families generate power by burning dung, burning manure, which is not cleaner than natural gas. And then we look back in U.S. history. If you look at film footage from the early 20th century, there were horses all over New York, all over London and major cities producing dung and creating a fetid dangerous atmosphere they were they were replaced by the combustion engine now of course we've got all sorts of reasons to be concerned about pollution from the gasoline combustion engine but we have to ask was it an improvement or not and then what are the next what are the next steps um so daniel you've been generous with your time today and i appreciate it very much the new map is a a brilliant work let me let me ask you this as you look let's uh, hypothetically you're looking at a mercator projection of the world map what are the two places that you think are most exciting or interesting to keep your eyes on, either for good reasons or for bad reasons uh, in the next couple of years? I would say it will be very interesting to see uh, how the Middle East changes and doesn't change as part of it. And I think to me, what the biggest geopolitical issue, we've moved from what I call the WTO consensus of view between US and China, that we're all in this together, to this great power competition, strategic rivalry. And I think that's the number one issue for statecraft going forward. How's that managed? It's not a new Cold War in the Soviet American sense, but it is something very different. And I think that's going to be kind of a dominating issue. As I traveled, when I was able to travel before the pandemic around the world, I'd hear from other governments and leaders saying, we don't want to have to choose between the United States and China. China's our biggest market. The U.S. is our most important economic and strategic relationship. I think I'm really focused on that. Going back to where we started on shale, I believe in technological innovation. And it's just, I'm really, you know, curious to see and really interested to see what's going to be the next technology surprise. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets, the final in our five-part series, an emerging energy framework for the 22nd century. Michelle Dennity will be back next Saturday to kickstart our next five-part series, examining the evolution of digital identity and how self-sovereign identity specifically can help bring trust and privacy back into a consent-based economy. The title of the series is Identicate Sequence X, and if you are interested in the axis between privacy, security, trust, and money, you do not want to miss it. On behalf of ABEX, I'm Todd Buckholtz. Thank you for joining us. 
That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Markets.